let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, for this day we give you thanks open again. We pray as beggars, Lord. Um, we beg that you would be here, that you would speak, and that you would create uh, rather than find uh, that which is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just as a way of warming up to the uh, to the class, I want to commend again this this book. Um, it's an extraordinary book. Um, some people in this room have uh, have really uh, recommended it to me highly, and I finally picked it up after a long time. In fact, the whole reason for this summer series on the parable that Ron and Michael and I are tag teaming with was really because I wanted to get into this book and this particular author, Robert Farrar Capon, uh, and it is it is really really great. As I sat with it again. This week, um, it's accessible. Uh, it's a book about the parables, but it's not a commentary per se. If you've ever read a commentary, you know that they can be very, very helpful, but they can also be very difficult. They can be very dry. They can be um, they're not the sort of thing you want to sort of read uh, unless you're preparing. This is not a commentary per se. I mean, it reads really, really well. Um, and you could, you could actually read it by the pool, I think, and a lot of people would, would enjoy it. It's funny at times. It's certainly striking. Uh, it makes you go wow because of some of his illustrations. Um, it's really good. So I just highlight it to you. Um, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment. It's a compendium of OS three books. Uh, and you can keep it on your shelf, read just a part of it, uh, like the parable of, of Lazarus and Dives, as it's uh, called in the King James Version, um, or what we, we know as the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Dives means rich man in, in Latin, and so um, it's often known as as Dives and Lazarus. You can just read that if you hear a sermon on it or the Good Samaritan today uh, and go back when you get home and, and spend seven minutes just reading his chapter on that and it's like, wow, that's really cool. Or you can read the whole thing straight through and it'd be a 300 and whatever page book that you can uh, you know, pat yourself on the back and say, look what I did. So, and then tweet it. Um, uh, so let's go. Today, the, uh, the, the, the parable... Um, Lazarus and Dives, or the rich man and Lazarus, the one that's really sort of unusual in a lot of ways, uh, where we have this, uh, this strange scene where a rich man uh, and, a, and a beggar on his steps both die. Um, so death being the great equalizer, as it always is, uh, both die, and their, their conditions are reversed in what looks like the afterlife, what is the afterlife. As, a, as the poor man is taken up into heaven and placed, carried, as it says, on, on Abraham's bosom um, into the lap of Abraham. And then the rich man who enjoyed all the nice things in life is shown in Hades. And we get the word, here again, Jesus, not Paul, nobody else in the Bible. It's Jesus who speaks mostly of judgment. It's Jesus who speaks about hell. It's Jesus who speaks about sort of the, the final things. You know, that's something to really clarify. Um... Uh, there, um, where a great chasm has been fixed, uh, where no one can pass, as Abraham is talking to, uh, to, to the rich man, to Dives, who's in Hades, uh, uh, we see the reversal of fortunes. So we're going to get into that a little bit today, um, but then move that to really think what the parable is about uh, towards the way God operates. How does he actually enact power in this world? Um, in a real way, a personal God, a person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in three, working with people, that's you and I, how, whatever he does, whatever he wants to do, this is kind of how I'm sort of working this through, what a, how does he do whatever he wants to do with us? That's the question I want to pursue today. Um, uh, barring in on Martin Luther through Robert Capon, um, 
Luther came up with the phrases of, of right-handed and left-handed power. Right-handed power, sort of the direct linear power, the power that's visible, the power that makes sense. Very sort of John Stuart Mill talking about public science and utilitarianism up here before the class. Um, power that's cause and effect, that's conditional, if-then um, power that we normally think of with parenting. If you do that again, I'm going to place you in timeout. Consequential power. Um, all that's right-handed power. And then there's left-handed power, what Luther called the left hand of God, the left-handed power, the left-handed enactment, which is um, always below the surface, which doesn't make sense um, to our natural reason, where foolishness of God exceeds the wisdom of men, as Paul would put it. Uh, where whatever God does, he does often in paradox. The paradox is like... Uh, uh, that in death we find life. And so as both men die, it's in fact the one, the beggar, for we are beggars, it is true, the, the beggar finds life, in fact, because he actually said, I'm a dead man. <laughs> and he reckons his death and in so doing finds freedom to be alive in Christ. But the rich man who fought his death that's sort of the weird thing, because it's a parable. It's not historical, by the way. We'll get into the text and we'll see that. Um, the rich man never actually realizes that he's dead. He thinks he's still in control, doing right-handed stuff, telling Abraham what to do. Send Lazarus down here and, 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 and cool my, my, uh, my thirst. Well, then send him to my brothers and let him tell my brothers so they don't have the same fate. Well, then do this, Abraham. And he keeps doing right-handed stuff, consequential stuff. If you do this, then they'll believe. And that's what the parable is about. The left-handed, indirect, subterranean power of God, which inverts things so that beggars become rich. And those were Luther's famous last words, which I've said several times. Uh, we are beggars, it is true. Last words, which um, it's, it's, it's unsure whether or not he actually spoke those last words to his good friend Justice Jonas right before he died, or because uh, I've also heard that they found some scribblings that he had placed in sort of a last will and testament into, uh, into his pocket where he, he, I thought, wonderfully says, um, it is true, I am well known in heaven and on earth and also in hell. <laughs> Isn't that a great thing to say? I think it's a great thing to say. <laughs> Luther's scrolling this out in the hours before he dies. I, it's true. I am well known in heaven and on earth, because he'd become infamous and famous at the same time, uh, as well as in hell. And he goes through and issues some other things. And then he says, uh, and we are beggars. This is true. What does that mean? The subterranean working of God, the left-handed power of God, that in so begging we find ourselves rich. And always remaining in need, we find ourselves amidst plenty. And finding ourselves without, we find ourselves within. Um, Left-hand, subterranean, hidden workings of God it can be very arresting when you take this full out. But so can the right hand of God. And we'll, oh, this is just an intro. We're going to set this up and even look at a little clip from The Godfather three, if we can do it, to pull me back in scene. It's very short, but it's very it's a great illustration of right-handed power. So all that's to say, that's where we're headed. Any comments on that, just for an intro and before we dive into the text? The question we're pursuing today, whatever God does, how does he do it? Right hand, left hand. Whatever God does, 
how does he do it? That's what that's the question I'm trying to attack. And of course, as always, I like interaction and sort of pull that through. So the text, um, the, we can look at several of the themes that are present in the passage. We're going to look at death, resurrection, lastness, lostness, leastness, littleness, uh, loss, um, inversion, paradox, uh, judgment. Um, it's plainly here. Parable of rich man and Lazarus. Several things, odd things about the text. Um, as a preface, it's it's not. And I read a few commentaries this week where where they uh, uh, they wanted to say, or they didn't want to say, they did say that this is a uh, in fact Jesus relaying a um, uh, knowledge of an historical fact. He knew a man named Lazarus. This isn't the Lazarus who was resurrected in John 11. It is interesting though; they're the same name. Um, uh, who was his good friend, at whose death Jesus wept, etc. and so forth. Some people think it's a different Lazarus who actually died, and Jesus is kind of telling, you know, this is what happens. That's not what the text is doing. I'm going to go sort of all in on that. This isn't a glimpse into the afterlife. This isn't sort of uh, a, a, a description of something like purgatory, where there's this in-between state. Um, it wouldn't be purgatory, as the Catholic Church defined it, because there's no sort of purging or removal of sins so that we can ultimately be found righteous for admittance into heaven. That's what purgatory is all about, this purgation, this purging, this, uh, this cleaning off of a, of a sinfulness which takes tens of thousands of years according to the long list of cause and effects of sin. Very right-handed, by the way. Um, it's not that. It's not an historical story. Um, Jesus didn't know somebody named Lazarus. Uh, it's a parable. It's a parable. Why do we know that? Because of the way it fits into the rest of Luke, because of the style, because of the way it starts off. There was a rich man. Um, it just fits. And so you've got to make an interpretation and a, and a stance, and that's certainly where I come in. Um, it is interesting. It's the only time in a parable where Jesus gives a proper name to somebody. Um, it's also interesting that the, uh, the last miracle of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel of John, is the raising of Lazarus, his good friend, the brother of Mary and Martha, who Jesus purposefully tarried for four days before going there, uh, at whose uh, uh, at whose graveside Jesus wept. You know, in, you know, famously known as the shortest verse in the Bible. Interesting that he would call the same uh, this character. Well, there's a story about resurrection here because clearly, as C.S. Lewis said, we are souls and we happen to have bodies, rather than we are bodies who happen to have souls. In other words, we're not materialists. We don't sort of exist just because we have corpuscular, what sort of material in us. That's not what defines us. The soul defines us. Our psyche defines us. Um, this, this is the parable where you could sort of build on that idea. Uh, why in the world did I go here? I have no idea. Um, because... Uh, uh, well, anyway, it doesn't really matter. Um, I put myself off, off task. Um, it is interesting that he would call this character named Lazarus, uh, which has a definite, uh, which deals fully and truthfully with the definite reality that we are souls, that we do exist beyond this material world. Um, so the existence of heaven and hell and all that eschatology at the end of time, when the eschaton, when the final time comes to an end, that's all that word means, uh, when that happens, there will be something. This begins, that, that's really where this parable stops. It just says there will be something. It's not to say, and this is what it will be like, where there's this torment in Hades or this sort of lap of Abraham and this conversation that goes on. I think that's, a, that's just a parable, and it's used to illustrate what? It's used to illustrate the question, 
when God does something in this world, how does he do what he does? That's what I'm saying this parable is about. When God does something in this world, which he does often, how does he do what he does? Um, so, uh, let's look at this. Let's read the parable and actually get into the text, and then we'll, uh, we'll move forward from there with a little bit of art and maybe some Al Pacino and some other stuff. So, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. I'm just going to kind of go verse by verse and make some comments. So, he sets up the story. A rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Why is purple important? Color of royalty. Why is it the color of royalty? Because it was so rare. Very expensive. I think it comes from a a crustacean from the ocean or something like that. That was the only way they could get the color purple. Not easily done. You didn't have have purple lying around. Only the richest of the rich were able to afford to have purple. And so it lets you know who the people who had stars upon the ours were. not even a snicker. Gosh, nobody reads Dr. Seuss to their children anymore. So, um, there you go. So, um, just a way of sort of separating yourself from everybody else. And this was a man who was able to separate himself. This is kind of a Rockefeller kind of thing, in other words. So there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously, the adverb, who feasted sumptuously, ridiculously lavishly, every day, not once a week, not every other day, Every day was the finest of the fine. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Lazarus comes from Eliezer, um, uh, who's there's several of those in the Old Testament. God has helped. Um, that could be important. Um, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. What's the detail about? Just to say how much of a beggar he was. The richest of the rich, I don't want to get too far into this, they were so rich, what did they do? It's kind of like the idea of you know, the Monopoly guy lighting his cigar with a you know, $100 bill. They, would, uh, they had so much food, of course they didn't have napkins or forks, and so they just ate with their hands, and at the end of which they just took bread and sort of wiped their hands with bread, and that's what he would have been happy to eat, which is kind of the leftover that fell from his hand washings. And then the dogs, you know, back then, as well as many parts of the world, they didn't have pets the way that we have pets. These were sort of wild animals who normally were definitely fearful. I mean, they were mongrels. They would come up, and, and they weren't, weren't the sorts that you'd want a pet or wouldn't let you anyway. But even the dogs are having compassion on Lazarus. They came up and licked his sores because they were, um, both that's kind of gross because he had these open wounds, but also this compassion that even the dogs had for him. As if the dogs were over Lazarus is kind of the impression that you're getting here. So the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So death, the great equalizer, it comes and was carried by the angels. He was not alone. That's going to be a strong contrast to the rich man. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham. Father Abraham, you know, of, Luke, of Genesis, uh, where does that start? Like Genesis 11, um, uh, and who, who Paul picks up in Romans 4 as the, uh, you know, sort of the patron saint of imputation, you want to call it that. The one who believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Jesus is right there where he takes him away to Abraham's side. The one who believed and who counted to him as righteousness. No work whatsoever, no law, because Abraham lived 470 years before the law. All this is brought into play. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. You know, 
a little detail that we didn't have. Poor man died, probably just died in the street and was just kind of picked up and thrown away just like a dog would have been and thrown into the dump. Uh, the rich man died and was buried like the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea gave up so Jesus could be placed into the tomb. So last exercise of circumstance and pomp. Uh, the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, um, not mentioned too often, Hades, up until this point, had really just been the abode of the dead. No qualification, really, of being good or bad. Bad would have been Gehenna, which was sort of late Jewish thought right before the anyway, New Testament. Um, but the, the Jesus has a little color to it in his parable. And in Hades, being in torment, and he's alone, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So it's very sort of C.S. Lewis, great divorce going on here, if you've read that book. Uh, I think Lewis had this in mind even when he wrote that book. Um, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. Um, so uh, Lazarus now uh, included with Abraham and uh, the rich man, Dives, all alone in torment in Hades. And then the rich man called out, Father Abraham, some deference, have mercy on me. We are beggars. It is true. So our last language is always prayer. Um, Father Abraham, uh, Lord, uh, Lord, um, uh, have mercy on me. We are beggars to the end. But he retains his bit of right-handed power. Um, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger. Still calling the shots in hell. That's definitely a sort of a hellish way. Rather to be, what's, how's it go? Rather be a servant in, uh, in heaven. Or, or I'd rather be a, uh, in charge in hell or you know, whatever that says. So he's definitely pulling that out. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child. So there's that term of endearment. It really means sort of dear little son, because it's got the qualification. Dear little son, child, remember uh, that in your lifetime, you uh, that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. So Abraham, who was counted who believed and it was counted to him as righteous, uh, righteousness. He's calling a thing as it is. Remember that in your lifetime, this is the way it was for you, and for Lazarus, this is the way thing was for him. Lazarus in manner, uh, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may be able to cross and grow uh, cross from there to us. In other words, the game is over. The great chasm has been fixed. There is no passage back and forth. The right-hand power, the direct sort of above-ground, linear, causal, consequential power, the way that we know things, where we recognize something beautiful and we say, that's beautiful, or we say, that is uh, recognize something ugly, that is ugly, something attractive, that is attractive, I want to be near it. The way something is repulsive, I don't want to be near that. That's all right-handed power. That game is over. And then he said, um, Dives, the rich man, Then I beg you, Father, still, language of prayer being our last language, still, we are beggars, it is true. Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, but still holding on to the right hand. Uh, Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, so he may preach to them, <laughs> uh, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, 
They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear uh, them. Let the brothers hear Moses and the prophets. This is Robert Capon. You've got a Bible, you get a basket full of the Bible right there at them. If they're going to hear the word, let them hear what they already have. Uh, And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So he's saying poltergeist will work. If you come out and sort of rise up and go scare the bejesus out of them, then they'll believe. Abraham doesn't pick it up. And he said, uh, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Those who refuse to see Jesus revealed in the scriptures, Jesus revealed in the cross, Jesus revealed in sort of this left-handed, subsurface, hidden way, they're not going to believe. Um, they're not going to have that faith. They may be convinced, but only for a season. I'm thinking of American Beauty. Um, what's the scene? I should have pulled this movie up too. You know, it's the, the kid, and he's a drug dealer, but his parents, his dad especially doesn't know it's really hard. Um, and the line goes, uh, yeah, my dad thinks um, I got all this stuff from catering. Um, never underestimate the power of denial. And that's so true. Don't underestimate the power of denial, because all that is is, uh, uh, is right-handed power. Um, we, uh, all that is is a realization of an anthropology that the Bible would describe, which I keep saying every week, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And so this, this, this underestimation, never underestimate the power of denial, all that denial is is the justification of the mind of what the heart wants to believe. My son's not selling drugs. I, I mean, my heart can't believe that. And so we create these structures that, uh, that don't allow us to go there. Abraham wants to crack all that and says, remember how it was in your life. This is the, 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 the hard truth. The spade is a spade is a spade. You had your things. Lazarus did not. Um, so it's cracking all of that, just calling it all through. So that's the text. Um, any comments on that? I'm going to kind of come in and go out of this, but now I'm going to really sort of zoom out and not be uh, not be at 10 feet, but kind of come up to 40,000 and try to follow this question. When God does work in this world, which he does, when he exercises power, how does he do what he does? That's what I want to sort of chase. Any comments so far? Any thoughts? Gil, what about Paul's conversion experience? seems to kind of be Jesus coming back from the dead and revealing himself. Yeah. In a pretty right-handed way. Uh, right-handed way, but but who else saw it? Um, uh, he did it alone, and to Paul, um, sort of a, uh, uh, I mean, the left hand reveals itself. I'm going to show that in just a minute in this piece with a, with a, a the, the Russian artist uh, Nikolai Gay, who Ron put me onto several years ago, that, that I think has just got some great pieces. Um, uh, when God does something, how does he do what he does? Part of that is revelation. He revealed himself to Paul in a way that was absolutely true and unmistakable. And that's going to happen here. The question is, how does he reveal? Success, power, right-handed, sort of linear, direct ways are much more in sort of an uh, God revealing himself in weakness and in shame. I'll throw another quote from Luther at this point, um, where God, uh, what, is, what, is, what does he say? Um, hard word, good word. God makes us sinners. 
in order to make us righteous. So bringing Paul to that place, that in order to make Paul Paul and no longer Saul, he actually made him sinful, made him broken, weak, that God works in a way where he takes um, that which isn't, or at least that is enveloped in shame, in order to turn it into something new. That's where I'm going to end. And the love of God which creates rather than finds that which is pleasing. So. Couldn't it be too? He said they did not hear Moses and the prophets, so they they may have already heard from Jesus, and then they very clearly. Yeah. When that's right. Um, and the author of author of repentance remains God. That when He reveals, He he'll, He will reveal Himself to whom He wants to reveal Himself, and it will be in a way that's not expected. Thank you. Yep. I don't think this is right, but there's an implication that the rich man goes to hell, the poor man goes to heaven, and the only difference is their circumstances. That's right. There's no showing of righteousness on behalf of the poor man, but I don't think that's the message. Uh, I think you're right, though. A couple of thoughts there. Um, one, it's not, it's a parable. Um, the whole counsel of God is not built on one parable. We don't develop an entire doctrine of salvation from from the, the, the parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus, for instance. Uh, but your last statement, 100% right. Um, there doesn't seem to be any merit in it whatsoever. It just seems sort of almost arbitrary and capricious, outrageous, you know, audacious on, on the Bible's parts to say, look, the rich man goes to hell and the beggar goes to heaven. Neither did anything other. And Dives, as a lot of people wanted to point out, he didn't do anything wrong. This is a sin of omission. He didn't sort of make Lazarus a poor man. He didn't do something to keep him down. He just didn't help. And so there's all that. And if we want to sort of draw morality out of it, you know, I'd tell all y'all to say, hey, you know, we're all in a position of privilege. Let's go out, you know, notice things that you haven't seen yet and, uh, and do it because you're going to be held in like manner. Is, that, is, there, is there a word there? There is a word there, but it's after... We answer the question, when God does something in this world, by which power does he do it? Because I think if we make this into a morality play, if we make this into a trailer uh, Lovren thing, um, we st- we, 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 we're, we're, we're not in Christianity. That's a huge statement, I know, but we're not. We're not in Christianity. We're in, I'm way out of my league, we're somewhere near Aristotle. And at that point, I would turn the thing over to, to Jason, so um, we'll do that later, so. Um, let's go forward, um, zoom out a little bit and see what this is. This hidden, strange work of God. Um, uh, God hidden. Uh, verse in Isaiah. Uh, it says, surely um, your steps are as in the... Uh, as in the ocean, for you are a hidden God. Your steps are as in the ocean, where as soon as you pick up your feet, you know, there's no footprint. I don't know where you are. I can't see you moving, for surely you are a hidden God. Um, that's not a comfortable way of, of thinking about it. Where in the world is Aslan? I can't see him. I can't find him. I don't know that he's located in a certain place. I can't constrain him to a, pl- a particular place where I can go there and see him on a pilgrimage. I mean, he's right there or he's not, and I don't even know. Um, he feels like he's not 
been here for not only my lifetime, but for generations. Where in the world is God? The, the, the God hidden. That's definitely here. Because this, this inversion of, of placement, where the, the, that in poverty uh, he becomes rich for no reason except that it seems like because in poverty he becomes rich. That's a difficult thing to begin to get around. I can't remember my next slide. Let me see. Yep, that is what it is. Um, this is the piece by Nikolai Gay, if you want to turn the lights off just for a moment. Um, a few years ago, um, this is the uh, the artist who was on the Linton lunch brochure, um, Christ and Pilate, What is Truth? Um, Ron showed me this. I can't remember which piece he showed me the first time. Uh, but this is a, uh, he's a Russian artist. Uh, G.E. is how you say his last, spell his last name. Uh, Gay, G.E. Uh, uh, late uh, what 19th century, I think this was 1890, 1892, something like that. It's called Judas, comma conscience. Um, I think this is what's going on, uh, and why I'm bringing in this now. Um, there's two ways of thinking about love. There's human love, and there's the love of God. Um, Judas is here. Uh, uh, never, I hadn't seen this in, in, in art yet. I hadn't really thought of it. But what it captures the moment, this moment of coldness and growing darkness that's coming around Judas as he has just uh, turned Jesus over to the, uh, to the, to the marauding band of, uh, of soldiers, uh, of, uh, of Pilate's men. And so you can see off to our right in the distance sort of the glowing uh, group that's walking away. That's Jesus with uh, the, 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 the people who were armed who had come to take him away. Judas has just kissed Jesus and betrayed him and turned him over. And this, 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 this piece captures, I think, very evocatively the moments right after that happened where Judas is suddenly left absolutely and completely alone, desolate, uh, clutching this, uh, uh, this wrap around him. I don't know where the money is, but wrap, clutching, uh, clutching this wrap around him as his conscience grows. Here's the piece that I think is also being at play here. The love of man versus the love of God, um, where Judas's love, if we want to call it that, right-handed, uh, uh, I hadn't thought this through completely, but, but somehow he was looking at consequences. He was trying to either force Jesus' hand for a good reason or seeing that just for his own gain, uh, if I do this, then I'll get that. Um, that type of power makes sense to us. That type of power says, if I do this, then I'll get that, and it will forward my hope and my cause. That type of power says, this would make what is good better. This type of power says, that's beautiful, attractive, advantageous, uh, uh, positive, strong, admirable, uh, desirable, that type, that, that's what I want. And it goes and gets it, or it takes steps towards that. And that's what Judas was doing. The love of God, the amor crucis, the love of the cross, uh, is the left hand. It's the hidden work. It's the opposite of all that I just said. It's that love which uh, works in... Uh, by saying that which is lowly, that which is shameful, that which is weak, that which is despicable, that which is unacceptable, that which is broken, 
that which is sinful, that's how I work in the world. That's the power and the mechanism of God. Isaiah, suffering servant, for he has no comeliness that we should be attracted to him. Um, that my grace is perfected only in your weakness. Um, that where I seem most absent, my God, my God, how could you have forsaken me now, here, you know, 3 p.m. on Good Friday, now of all times, he is in fact most present. That's the hidden work of God. Um, and that's where I think this is. Now, I'm not saying where Judas is or what he's doing. I know that's sort of a continuous theme in a lot of what I talk about. I just, we use him as a pole where he was working on one level. And when God works in this world, however he does what he does, how does he do it? That's the question. And he did it through Judas. He did it through a betrayal. He brought life through death. He brought justice through a betrayal. He, uh, he works in shame and loneliness, the things in this world which are not, Paul says, and he brings about that which is. And that's this, 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 this unbelievably phenomenal truth that the love of God finds, and no, does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. It looks on something that isn't, and it speaks and says, now come into being. And so he looked on here in Nikolai Gay's parts. Let's look at uh, uh, let's look at what isn't possibility for atonement, and let's bring about that which is through a betrayal, through this cold desolation and alienation. So let me bring us back up really fast. Um, you know, I also am involved with the bookstore, and so I'm always looking for a way to pull something together so y'all would buy it. And so I thought this would be a great idea. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? So <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, um, I did think that was pretty funny. I just wanted to sort of lighten the load just a little bit. You can raise it up again if you want. Um, last sort of lines. What is the uh, uh, right hand, left hand power? Um, mob movies. You know, I'm into them. This is going to be a bone for, for a lot of the men, I guess. Yes, that's a sexist statement, but it's probably true. Um, uh, but it's there in parenting, too. Let's pull this all the way through. Parenting. Um, you know, this is... I don't want to, I don't want to talk about my kids. Um, right-handed power. You know, if you do that, I'm going to have to, you know, do something. And they do it. So now what do you do? Well, you're stuck. I and mean, you got to up the ante. Now i got to sort of threaten a little bit more or talk louder or whatever else, and pretty soon we're, we're chaining them to the car, you know, because they can't get out or they're grounded until they're 42, which seems to be working because more and more 40-year-olds are living with their parents, whatever. Um, that's right in a public. Mob movies get it, you know, that part from The Untouchables uh, where he says, you want to know how to get to Capone? They pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one to the morgue, you know, all that. Or this part from... a. Uh, from Pacino, this is a 30-second thing um, out of uh, The Godfather 3. Um, right-handed power. I respect what he's done. The new overthrows the old. It's natural. I'm a businessman. First foremost. He's trying to get out of the mob. Trying to have a legitimate business. That he can live or he can die. Vincent, will you shut up? 
saying you got to go back, you can't do this, crime is the only thing we got. Just when I thought I was out, pull me back in. Our true enemy has not yet shown his face. Thunder, it's lightning, it's foreboding. He goes on, he has a heart attack. You know, right-handed power. What's its end? I mean, it is not good. There's no end to right-handed power. You take, you know, they take one of our guys to the hospital, we take it to a morgue. How are they going to respond? Pretty soon, at best, we got detente. At worst, you know, what's the line from war games, you know, you know, thermo-global nuclear war, you know, mutual destruction, you know, all that stuff. Right-handed power um, versus the left hand of God, the hiddenness of God working through the opposite, working, um, this is where it's a word of hope. Let me find my exit here. It's good news that God is hidden because it means God's there. What if Jesus was resurrected and we could all sort of go all in on Easter, the whole world, and say, yeah, because you know what? He's right over there. He's in the Himalayas. You can go visit him. And the Advent organizes a trip once a year to go see him. And so we all go visit the man who died 2,000 years ago and was raised, and he's still alive. And he's there, just in this treehouse over there in the Himalayas. So once a year, let's all go over there and uh, you know, and make it happen. Well, that, that sounds a lot like a lot of religions, doesn't it? So. Um, that's not a God hidden. That's a God fully revealed. There's no faith. There's no belief. There's no, there's no hope there. Because never underestimate the power of denial. For when you go there, you come back and, you know, man, you're, you're great the first week. I mean, you're, you're minding your P's and Q's. Your marriage is going great. You, you're, you're, you're fueled again. But human nature being what it is, because you got to assume that if that part of the story was true, that the rest of the story hasn't changed, and the human heart's weakness to sustain anything on its own is not going to be different just because Jesus, who was raised from the dead, did not ascend into heaven, uh, that that hasn't changed anything, that we remain completely sinful and, and weak and beggars. Uh, this story of, of the rich man and Lazarus, of Dives and Lazarus, it tells us a couple of things. I'm going to highlight two here at the last. That evil has to be faced in all of its seriousness and ugliness. Um, and that's especially our own evil. Our own inability to maintain any rightness, righteousness. That if Christ were alive still these 2,000 years and sort of physically placed here in the Himalayas where we can go visit. Or in the middle of Des Moines. You visit it and you will come. You know, Let's just go to the field of dreams, and it's just, just where Christ happens to sort of stay, and we can make a pilgrimage to him, that evil has to be dealt with and looked at, like Abraham did, and all of its righteousness, and all of its truth. Look, Dives, in your life, you had it this way, 
And, and in Lazarus' life, he had it this way. But now, it's the opposite. That's just a statement of fact. It's not necessarily a prediction. It's just a statement of fact. And that's what this parable invites, is, is how are things actually? How does the world actually happen? And when God wants to do something in this world, how does he do what he does? And then the second thing, about the love of God. Um, the love of God, at its essence, is God loving something that isn't yet there. That it's non-existence. You can think marriage, you can think parenting, you can think... Uh, but you, we should think mostly of the way that he loves me. That while I was yet sinning, godless, and his enemy, while I was holding the spike, you know, and sort of, you know, some, and, and, and you were pounding it, uh, that he died. Um, that, that the love of God, which has been overly sentimentalized in all sorts of ways. We talk about God's love, and we think, you know, and all that stuff, and it's become saccharine. That the love of God in its essence means that God loves that which is non-existent or which exists enveloped in shame, in weakness, in brokenness, in sinfulness, in, 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 in disobedient children, in, in failing or failed marriages, in, in memories that won't go away, in an awareness that, that whatever it is, it's not enough. That that's where God is at work. And that's really really good news because if he was there in the field of dreams in Des Moines he would be at work there and not here in my brokenness in my shame in my need as a beggar and the hiddenness of God is actually one of the most important things that we can hold on to as a word of hope because it calls the world how it actually is and it says no just because you don't know that he's there that doesn't mean that God's not, because he works in the places that, where things don't yet exist, and he calls them forth into being. That's hope. Where a place feels hopeless, God is at work calling things to a place of hope. So I think that's a good enough end. Time for a comment before we stop. Dives and Lazarus and sort of started and zoomed up the Gal Pacino. Right-handed power. Let's pray. Father, take these words so feebly offered. Um, and as beggars, Lord, uh, create that which is so desperately needed, but which isn't there. Um, uh, thank you for being a God who loves us in our unattractiveness, um, in our separateness, in our isolation, in our, uh, in our sinfulness. Uh, speak and love us with the love of the cross. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.